Good morning and welcome to worship. Fruit basket upset today. We have a lot of things and we're going to do things differently. Today's our first Sunday in 18 months that we are going to celebrate corporate communion. We welcome, yes, hallelujah, that's good. And we celebrate our friends, Fellowship of Christian Athlete folk who are at Central College and they are looking, pursuing. I like, welcome y'all, good to have you here, welcome. We're going to do communion differently today. Let me explain what we're going to do, and then we're going to do fruit basket upset, and I'd like you to try to say hi to someone you don't know. We're just going to be nuts for about two minutes. And then I'm going to bring us back, and I'm going to do about 20 minutes. I want to prepare us for communion. But we're going to take corporate communion differently. We're going to do it in stations. So if you notice, there's a large table, barstool table, barstool table, barstool table, barstool table. I'm going to ask everyone, if you would go exit where you're sitting to your left, from front to back and go up to a station if you would like to receive communion and the elders will serve you in that way and then go back to your seats right. So it'll be a little clunky here for the, some of the people in the front, but exit left, come to stations, one, two, three, four, and go back to your seats on the right-hand side. We don't need to rush and we don't need to have a line to the back. Let's just take our time. We want to spend plenty of time just enjoying the presence of the Lord and receiving from him in, in the sacraments today. So that's what we're going to do. Before we do all that and before we worship, let me offer a prayer. And then can you act like you'd like everybody in this room? And the extroverts, here's your chance to just scream, fly, be up feet, And the introverts, just wave at somebody. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the privilege of worship. We thank you for new friends, for old friends, for your body, your presence, and we thank you for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. 30 seconds, fruit basket upset. Say hi to somebody. High five, say hi to somebody. Great. Well done, everybody. Have a seat. Thank you. We, we have many guests, and so I need to summarize kind of quickly, and we're going to do some segueing different places. So this is where we've been for our friends of FCA, for our guests today, congregation, long-term members. We've been trying for two years to live in this reality. We've been calling ourselves people who want to flourish in exile. And the idea is the Christian Christendom is over. What used to be the traditional understanding of life in the Western culture is over. And the Christian traditions have been pushed to the margins. So I've been suggesting to our church family, it doesn't matter where we are, we get a chance to flourish. How do we do it? We've been talking about love. There are four words in the Greek New Testament for love. We're talking the word we use over and over is agapao. And I'm defining it as to will the good of another. So we flourish by being people of love who are willing the good of other people, especially those we disagree with. 
Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute. We want to be people who flourish. How do we do it? This is our four specific steps. Specific steps. One, we need to name reality. Where are we located? We're living on the margins today. The Christian church on the margins. We want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. We want to be those kinds of people in culture. We want to be people who are living in intimacy with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we want to be a people who are generous, who are generous with our words, with our deeds, with our gifts, with our lives. So that's what we've been trying to do for two years. Now let me take you back to naming reality. Could you open your Bibles to Genesis, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29? And just quickly, let me take you through a few verses in Jeremiah 29. So this has been kind of the foundational passage for the idea of exile. And for our guests, for those who aren't, perhaps aren't familiar, from Genesis 3 on, the, word, the phrase exile is part of the Christian's experience. Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 4. Ne next slide, please, Sherry. So this is the, these are the two questions that I have. I want you to think about. Who is exiling and why? Who and why? Jeremiah 29, 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those, look at the next phrase, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, historical fact. Let me give you what that looked like. Because the people were disobedient, we said they blew God off and did their own thing, they were destroyed. The country was destroyed. Now, remind you, the journey from Jerusalem to Babylon is 700 miles. And because for the cruelty of the, of the Babylonians, the women were put nose to nose with their earrings. So imagine that. You're, women, you're hooked up with another woman nose to nose, and you have to walk with this partner across the desert. All kinds of people died in transit. Now notice the phrase, verse 29, 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. Who's exiling? It's God. He says to those who've been exiled, verse 5, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry sons and marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, so that they too have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried into, into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So I want you to think about this now. Don't clean it up. You've walked 700 miles through the desert, and now you're going to be stuck in this place for 70 years. Your country's destroyed. Everything you owned is gone. Your loved ones have been killed. And the Lord says, in exile, create a great new life. Have families. Prosper. Pray for your oppressors. Pray for influence, positively influence those who are oppressing you. I want you to, don't clean it up. How would that feel? You're watching people you love die in transit. You are stuck now in a foreign country with people who hate you for 70 years. And you hear this word from the Lord, you know what? This is going to be for your good. Just let that run through your head and your heart. Now let me stop for a second. If we are in post-Christendom, things that we often thought were understood, normal, whatever, everything is changing all around us. And may I just keep suggesting to us, one of the reasons we are in exile, the biblical reason first, is rebellion and disobedience. 
So let me just quote scripture for you. I'm quoting from 1 Peter. Judgment begins with the house of God. So if, if, if post-Christendom is true and we're on the margins, it's because there has been a lack of connection to Christ our Lord in the lives of those who call themselves followers of Jesus. So let's not be surprised. Let's embrace we are now in a different spot. A little bit farther, verse 11, famous verse. One of my sons has his tattooed on his back. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Look at verse 12. 70 years in captivity, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to me. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and the places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place in which I carried you. Down to verse 19. There's a whole description of the Lord's reason for exile. 19, they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord. Words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. And you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. The point I'm trying to make is simple. There are reasons why the Lord sends his people into exile. So if, the, if Christendom is over, what was normal in Western Europe, the United States and Canada for X centuries, whatever, what all that, it's over. Let me give you one quick example. So for our guests, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty old. When I, in the 60s, I lived in Chicago. My mom and dad, my dad's a pastor. And so this is, Christ, this is an example of Christendom. This, is, this was everybody in our church, Calvary Church, 84th and Damon. My son played for the Bulls, and his, one of his teammates was Derrick Rose. Derrick Rose grew up right where we lived. So this is what Sunday was like, keeping the Sabbath, fourth commandment, in Christendom in the 1960s. This is our whole church, huge church. You were in church on Sunday morning at a set time. If you were the minister's kids, you were in the third row, third row where the Mitchells are. You had to wear certain clothes, and 12, 12 men elders sat behind us and they watched how we acted in church. My parents were graded in how we acted. Following church, the children were not allowed to run in the building. If we didn't have Sunday school, we were taken home. When you went, this, is, this is the whole church. On Sunday afternoons, you ate at home, ate at home, no television, no radio, could not go outside. I have five brothers. Boy, did I love Sundays. <laughs> it gets better. At 7 o'clock, we had to go back to church. Third row. Had the suit on, and we were judged, made sure we're doing all the right stuff. And that's what everybody did. That's an example of Christendom. There were rules, there were mores, there were things that, that we all did. Whether we liked them or not, we kind of agreed to them, and we just kind of did them. Let me ask you today. What is your choice on keeping the Sabbath holy today? 
See, in post-Christendom, there's a whole different way of looking at things like Sabbath-keeping. Well, let me give you just a couple examples. People ask me this question all the time. Can I have slides five and six? So this is what people have asked me the last six months. Now, these come directly from members of our church family who are asking questions. These are the questions, and I've just taken excerpts from their emails. Kevin, what is Third Church's position on abortion? The Derek Chauvin verdict, COVID vaccines, the stolen presidential election, mask wearing, the court's ruling on Planned Parenthood, the persecution of Christians by the Chinese government, online gambling, gambling, lottery tickets, the misuse of unemployment benefits, the excessive use of alcohol and recreational drugs, divorce, polluted water systems in southeast Iowa, homosexuality, cohabitation, porn usage, the pool incidents for our guests, there was um, some uh, activity among folk who define themselves as uh, transgender. There were some things that happened at our pool. So what's our opinion on pool incidents and Facebook posts when people write inflammatory things from Third Church family on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? So let me, before I answer the question, let me ask you the question. Who's Third Church? So what's your answer to all those questions? Now, in Christendom, it'd be pretty quick. We could answer some of them, maybe, pretty quickly. In post-Christendom, let me just give you, let's go to the public pool. And I didn't, I didn't include racism. Let's talk about racism. What's our, what's our opinion on racism? So when the, if you remember in May 31 last year when George Floyd's uh, died, I made some comments from the front. There was all kinds of comments, favorable and negative, to what I said about George Floyd. Oh, what do we do in a world when we face all these questions? And it used to be, you just, this is the answer, and this is what you do, whether you like it or not, it's over. Just, now, the reality is, let me give you an example of how Christendom didn't actually work. So in 1973, I went to Central College, and uh, there was a bar uptown on Franklin Street, and I thought it was the most unique thing in the world. All these cars would come up the alley, up the alley, and someone would come out with bags and run back. Because in those days, we did not like alcohol in public in Pella. But we snuck around to have alcohol in Pella. Now, what am I getting at? What the challenge we face today in post-Christendom is to rightly balance grace and truth. It's not either or. Some of us want to land on grace, 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 everything's, everything's fine, go, go. And others saying, no, 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 there is absolute truth. It cannot be divided in any way. And I'm going to say yes to both. Why? I'm going to quote John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus came full of grace and truth. I would suggest we begin with grace and we couple it with truth. They cannot be uncoupled. Now, keep pushing. And what I would like to do is be here or be here. But there's tension here. So how do I live in the context of a postmodern world with grace 
and with truth. And that's the challenge that we face today. So go back to slide seven. So this is what we try to do. We've tried for two years to talk about in multiple ways how do we flourish? How, do we, how does the life of Christ just so fill us? How does the power of the Spirit so enable us? How do the words of God so direct us that we can be a people who love? And the definition of love, akapao, is to will the good of another. Now let me stop for a second. In a few minutes, we're going to have communion. What's really interesting, I'm going to quote St. Paul. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of us all. If I go back to all those questions that I was asked this year, we're going to have a diversity of opinions about lots of things. But can I remind us, there is still one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so in the midst of lots of differences in post-Christendom, as we live with grace and truth, we come together as the body of Christ around the Lord's table. And that's just amazing to me. The Lord knows all of our hearts and all of our opinions and all of our lives. And he welcomes us. Those who have relationship with Christ are welcome to this table. So what have we tried to do? We want to name reality. We are living on the margins of culture. But that's okay because that's where God's people have always lived. Starting in Genesis chapter 3. In the margins, watch me now, when we lose place and space, when we lose position and power, then we have to be dependent to live in relationship with Jesus. Am I speaking the truth? And when things get taken away, when everything I've depended on gets taken away, the question is, do I believe? Do I believe to believe in the goodness of God. So what we try to do is be people who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Next week, I want to go after that. Galatians 5, 13 through 6, 23, 21, we talk about bearing the fruit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We flourish by letting be so connected to Jesus that his life, his attributes, his character traits come out of us we are joined in the intimacy of God. And for our guests, there's a Greek word called perichoresis, which is the dance, the circle of love. And I've said this over and over in that series, the circle of love, that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because we are enveloped. Life can't, death can't, angels can't, demons can't, nothing can't. And because we live in the circle of love, we can live and flourish in a world that's rapidly changing. And the last one is intimacy, is uh, generosity. Just being kind with our words, kind with our spirits. Terry, second to last, second to last slide. Honorable. This is the question I've been asking and praying about for all of us, for myself and for us for these last 18 months. As we've gone through COVID and so many different challenges, can each of us ask this question? If you look back on your life these last 18 months, have you been honorable? honorable as you sought to flourish in following Jesus. But let me push it out to, to us. Have we been honorable? Now let me give you, so I know we're going to be online and I'm going to get a bazillion 
emails, but I'm still going to go there. <clears throat> Talk about being honorable. One of our elders was at a, uh, a, I'll just say it, at the last city council meeting. And one of our elders was there with a number of young people who were there because they were wanting to support the um, uh, community center upgrade to have a theater. So now we're talking a bunch of 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds who are trying to understand how do we live in this post-Christian world and what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And the elder cried and said that the young people listen to people who call themselves Christians who were very, very uh, strong and opinionated in what they said. And the young people said to one of our elders, if that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I'm not sure I want to be one. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. That's, we got to figure this grace and truth thing out. We, we, we have to figure this out. It's too easy to be one or the other. And so as we think about living, are we living honorably? Honorably, so that people sense the presence of Jesus in us. So people experience the goodness of the kingdom of God. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We need truth absolutely. But I think we have to lead with grace, and it has to be coupled with truth. It's not either or. All that to say, welcome to America today. Am I speaking the truth this morning? See, and this is, young people, am I speaking the truth to you? So I want you to keep thinking. I, I, in my head all the time, I'm thinking about young people. It, it's pretty easy to stand, for me to stand in the front and just make pronouncements. A lot of preachers do. But what I'm concerned about is this generation watches this old man look like Jesus and talks like Jesus and gives like Jesus. So this generation says, if that's what a follower of Christ looks like, I'm willing to explore it. And it's grace and it's truth. Do you hear me? It's both. It absolutely is both. Boy, am I going a different direction than I planned this morning. Just wait till you see my emails Monday. Woo! All right. Mike, what's next? Are we, are, we, are we singing next? Is that our plan? Oh, i got to set this up. Right. Thank you. Told your fruit basket upset. Thank you. So let, let's, let's prepare our hearts for communion now. And I don't typically read from the liturgy, but I'm going to read from today because I want, I want you to hear the preparatory words. We're going to move into then uh, a time of, of singing and then communion. And I just remind you, and as we do this, if you would like, remember, come left, exit left, return right, front to back. If you'd like to stand when you're not in line, you want, if you want to sit and sing, you can respond as you choose. We want to create space to really receive from the Lord in the gift of communion. But let me just set this up just a little bit. As I read these words, could I ask all of us just to examine your own heart? What's the condition of your heart this morning? As we walk into this welcome of the Lord's Supper, when he welcomes us with all our stuff, good and bad, 
Could we have open hearts? If we have sinned against the Lord, if we have sinned against sisters or brothers, could you confess your sins prior to participating? Prepare your hearts. So hear the words of liturgy. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper which we're about to celebrate is a feast of three words, cherry, remembrance, communion, and hope. Here's the first one. We come remembrance that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus established a new covenant of grace and reconciliation that we can be accepted by him and never be forsaken. Second word, we come to have communion with this same living Jesus Christ who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. In the breaking of bread, Jesus makes himself known to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us to life eternal. In the cup of blessing, he comes to us as the vine in whom we must divide if we are to bear fruit. And the third word, we come in hope. Hope is anticipatory of the future. We come in hope, anticipating that this bread and this cup are pledged and foretaste taste of the feast of love of which we shall partake when Jesus comes in all his glory. Since by his death, resurrection, and ascension, he's obtained for us his life-giving spirit who unites us, listen to the next three sentences, who unites us all as one body. So are we to receive this supper in love, mindful of the communion of the saints. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this bread is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he took a cup of juice, and he changed the liturgy. The liturgy begins like this. Blessed art thou, king of the universe, the creator of the vine. And Jesus changed it and said to those he loves, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, you do this in remembrance of me. The bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. And a cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Be reminded, if you'd like to receive communion, and no one needs to, if you'd like to, please exit left, return right, front to back. You can stand, you can sit, respond as you choose. Receive from the Lord. He loves us deeply.